And as you're being seated, would you please grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the beginning of the Scriptures, to the book of Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to try and cover the whole chapter as we're working our way through this section in Genesis in which we trace the, the faith and faults of Father Abraham, the one who God called and the one who God blessed so that all blessing through him might come to all the peoples of the world. So Genesis 14, and you'll note as well that in your bulletin, I have, free of charge, provided you with a map as well. So this is a very special Sunday. And as I'm reading, you'll, you'll see why we, we have uh, this map. Well, hear the word of the Lord this morning. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Ketaleomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketaleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketaleomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return, from the defeat of Ketaleomer and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. 
thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Lord, please open our eyes this morning that we might behold wondrous things from your word, even wondrous things that we wouldn't expect when reading such a, a distant text from us like this. Teach us to walk in the path of your commandments that we might grow in wisdom and holiness and draw our hearts ever nearer to you that we might know you better and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You made your bed, now you have to lie in it. He's just getting what he deserves. He's reaping what he's sowed. What comes around, goes around. If you mess with fire, you'll eventually get burned. Why should I dirty myself trying to clean up his mess? It's too risky, too dangerous. Am I responsible for his problems? Those are all phrases that Abraham could have used when one of the escapees from Sodom came and reported to him, your nephew Lot has been taken captive by an army that has just defeated 11 different kings, and he's now a prisoner of war of King Ketaleomer. But you'll notice from what I read, he did not use a single one of those phrases. In fact, he didn't speak, he acted. Instead, he immediately enlists a small band of soldiers, certainly a band that would have been outnumbered by the army that we just read about. And he sets out on an an incredibly risky operation to rescue Lot from the mess that he's in. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. You hear the report from this escapee who barely made it to find you of the news and the magnitude of the army that has Lot captive. How would you have responded to hearing that news? Now, move away from that situation and just ordinary life. What is the decision-making method that you use to assess whether you should help someone who's in trouble or in need? We we all have a decision-making matrix that we use whether we acknowledge it or not when someone's in help and someone's in trouble. And one author insightfully pointed this out that our our, our typical decision-making matrix is like this. When assessing whether or not to intervene in a situation, we typically base our decision on the answers to two questions. First, does this person deserve my help? And second, can I help this person without great risk or inconvenience to myself? So if the answer to both of those questions is yes, we're normally glad to kind of go out of our way to help them. However, if either or both of those questions doesn't receive the kind of answer that we're comfortable with, we tend to hold back. And I, I think we could add a third question to that. What's in it for me? What benefit will I get if I do this for them? So if we, if we don't like the combination of the answer to those questions that we're more inclined to kind of sit on the sideline rather than to enlist ourselves in service for someone who's in trouble and needs help. So whatever the situation or circumstance, big or small, these three questions kind of function like a strainer that determines whether we're going to serve or not. What's the risk factor or inconvenience cost? Does this person deserve my help? And what benefit is there for me? Kids, even you, when you have to make decisions, 
you use this decision-making grid, whether you know it or not. For example, your parents come to you after dinner and they say, can you please help us clean up the dishes? Now they're nice enough to put it in the form of a question. I'm not as nice in my house. And you immediately begin to think, That'd be really inconvenient. I just, I set down a game before dinner and I'm supposed to go back to that game. You're really interrupting my play. And then you question whether your parents really deserve your help. After all, you didn't mess the pots and pans. They did, you just ate the food. So this isn't really fair. And you assume that there's an unwritten social contract between you and your parents. They make the food and you occasionally eat it and then they do the dishes. This is, this is how you've lived. But then there's an opportunity you see with this do the dishes request, right? You remember that there's still ice cream in the freezer. So you start the hard negotiation process. If I clean the dishes, will I get ice cream after we're done? We have this decision-making grid. What's the inconvenience or risk? Do they deserve my help? And what's in it for me? And we're really good, even from an early age, at looking out for ourselves rather than just willingly giving away ourselves and inconvenience and risk and courage and costliness. We'll come back to Abraham. As Abraham evaluates each of these questions in relation to Lot's predicament, all of them have an extremely negative answer to them when he's presented with the situation that Lot's in. But he does not let that deter him in the least. He doesn't deliberate or negotiate. He acts for the sake of of his kinsman Lot. He lovingly and courageously executes a rescue operation for the sake of his kinsman who's in trouble. And in so doing, he becomes for us an example of what it looks like to love others as God has loved us. To love his kinsman as God has shown his love to us. But most importantly, he is a preview, a foreshadow of our Savior who himself undertook the most perfectly executed rescue operation of the undeserving that there ever was. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, as we look at Genesis 14, let's consider the risk and danger of this rescue operation that Abraham undertakes. So one of the questions that we filter our decisions through when seeking to serve or help someone is, what's the risk? What's the inconvenience? We, we, we weigh those things. Well, the first 12 verses The first 12 verses of Genesis 14 are a lengthy and detailed and very difficult to pronounce way of saying the risk factor of Abraham's rescue operation is extremely high. I mean, if if this were a fire danger sign, like you see outside the Jupiter Fire Department, the the needle would be all the way in the red saying the, the risk of cost and life and limb and resources is extremely high to Abraham. If ever there was a situation that said, you know, even if I wanted to help him, there's nothing I could do for him. This might be one of those situations. Here's a breakdown of the trouble that Lot is caught up up in. So just 12 years ago, there was an Elamite king named Ketaleomar, and he led his coalition of forces from the northeast region of your map there on page 7 to the southern region of the Dead Sea area. And his army defeated the people dwelling in Sodom, in Gomorrah, in Adma, in Zeboim, and Zoar, right in that southern region of the Dead Sea. And Ketaleomar, being kind of the halfway decent guy that he was, decided to strike a deal with these cities. If you serve me and pay me tribute every year, 
I won't kill you. He's a very, very decent wager for them. Well, after 12 years of this, the five kings of these cities south of the Dead Sea decided enough was enough. Give me liberty or give me death. They can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. May have been some of the rousing speeches in this instance. It's just speculation. But anyway, they form an alliance that says we are going to try and win back our freedom. We're going to try to come under the reign of Ketelaomar and be free again. Well, that was the 13th year. Well, news travels and travels slow. So in the 14th year, Ketelaomar hears about this rebel alliance and he decides that he needs to hold up his end of the bargain. He's a, he's a man of integrity. He said, if you don't serve me and pay tribute, I'm going to kill you. And so being a man of integrity that he is, he decides to come and destroy these ungrateful rebels. Well, he reassembles his army of allies and they begin the long journey south. You can see in that, that red line, it's called the King's Highway. They're journeying down and he is not just having his sights set on reminding these people who's in charge, but he stops at six different cities along the way in verses five to seven and defeats six other kings and subjugates six other peoples. And all this is meant to say, this is no small army. This, this is no uh, easy battle that they are now entering into. Well, then in verses eight to 10, you have the battle of the nine kings taking place. I mean, this is like something out of the two towers in, in the Lord of the Rings. As I was hearing them hammer on the, the train out there, I'm thinking, oh, the Mines of Moria or something. They're, they're gathering for war. Perfectly fitting. Just have someone here banging a drum. Well, they meet in the Valley of Siddam, just south of the Dead Sea. And in Hollywood endings, it's, it's the rebel alliance who wins, right? It's, they're fighting for their freedom. They have a good cause, right? Well, of course they're going to win by the end of the movie. This is nothing like a Hollywood ending. There, there's no blaze of glory. It is a blaze of cowardice that ends this story of this rebel alliance. In fact, it comes... And the, descript- the description of the battle is so, so short. There, there's no even description. All it is is they come, they meet in the valley, and the next thing you know, they're fleeing and running to the hills for their lives. I mean, it's, it's a blaze of cowardice that they're going out in. And they're running away, and rather than fight to the death, it sounds like they either fall into or throw themselves into bitumen pits, which are, are pits of oil, where oil is bubbling up from the surface, oil and tar. And they throw themselves or fall into them because they would rather die there than face further subjugation to King Ketelaomar. In one sense, it shows how willing they are to either die or fight for their freedom. They would rather not face having to deal with King Ketelaomar. And then the rest hide away in the caves. Well, their retreat has now left all the cities open to be plundered and pillaged. And that's exactly what happens. And this is what we read in verses 11 to 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And this is now where Abraham gets pulled into the story. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So it starts out with this massive kind of international story of all these different kings and all these things. And it's kind of like a filter that narrows down. And now we see how this relates to Abraham, his nephew, has been taken captive and news comes to him of who has taken him captive and now he has to weigh the risk, the cost to himself. So when we ask the question, what is the risk? All of this indicates to us that the risk factor for Lot is off the charts. Who is Abraham compared to the record of this army, the the size of this army and the strength 
of those who are holding Lot captive. And the captivity of Lot is not the only threat that this army poses to Abraham. God has promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this great land that he just walked around. Well, the land that God just said Abraham walk around at the end of Genesis 13 is part of the travel pathway that this army just ran through. I mean, think about it. When you go to a nursery to, to buy a plant or a tree, when you purchase that plant, you're thinking, what is the most ideal environment that I can plant that in? If it needs a lot of sun, you find the place in your house where it needs the most, where it gets the most sun. If it needs shade, you find the place in your house where it gets the most shade. Well, what we're seeing here is that God seems to have planted Abraham in the most harsh and hostile environment that you can imagine. Here's a man with a small band of soldiers to his name who has just heard of a great and massive army trampling right through the land that God said, I'm going to give this to you and to make you a great nation. Well, it doesn't just seem that God has planted him in the most harsh and hostile environment. It is that way. God has placed Abraham right in the middle of circumstances and situations that from a human vantage point look absolutely overwhelming and impossible for him to overcome. This is another way in which God is stretching and exercising Abraham's faith in the promises. Abraham, here's these promises, and here's also this massive army that is running through the place where I'm going to give you these promises. Do you trust me that I can do this? And when you read through the scriptures, you see that God does this over and over again with his people. He places them in circumstances and situations that seem so hostile and so harsh that you wonder, how can God get us out of this? And yet when he's doing that, he is getting ready to show the surpassing greatness of his power and the invincibility of his promises. God sets up things in such a way so that when you see the results, you know all the glory goes to God. That he sets up the environment, the circumstances, the situation in such a way that you know no one could have done this but God alone. With man, all things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And it's through circumstances like this, when the forces around us seem so overwhelming, so insurmountable, that we start to learn the fearlessness that we should have in our faith, that we start to learn to say with the Apostle Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, why does Abraham go other than having the knowledge that God is on his side? And as one commentator said, he who has God on his side, even if he has no one else, is never outnumbered, is never lacking for support. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we need to remember this, is that we, we so easily can become circumstantially and environmentally focused. Look what's going on around us. Look at the forces that we're facing. How can the church grow? How can my, my family grow in this environment? You think of, even, even here in Jupiter, you think, how can amidst all this affluence, all these things that we can do to distract us from God, how can the church grow in South Florida? And yet remember, God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against us. And instead of being circumstantially focused, we have to remember, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have 
the invincible God who gives us invincible promises and nothing can stop his hand or thwart his purposes. And that's the fuel for a fearless and risk-ready faith. Well, now we've looked at the risk of this rescue operation. Let's look at the execution of this rescue operation. You'll notice in verse 13 that Abraham gets word about this because there is one resident from the city of Sodom that has escaped. And in God's providence, and you don't want to miss, you, it's not stated explicitly here, but you, you see God working and moving in that the one person who escapes from Sodom knows somehow that Lot is related to Abraham and he knows where to find Abraham. And if you look on this map, from where Lot was taken captive down at the south of the Dead Sea to where Abraham is, it's, it's not just you know, a quick little stroll. You can't call an Uber. I mean, this is, this is a treacherous journey which you're fleeing from an army that has just defeated 11 other kings. And somehow in God's providence, he finds Abraham. And he relays all this to Abraham. And Abraham realizes the gravity and danger of Lot's situation, and he has a decision to make. Do I, at great risk to myself, that's, that's a settled deal, at great risk to myself and my household, attempt to rescue Lot, who has separated himself from me, who, who, deci- who decided his own fate when he went to Sodom? Or do I protect myself from risk and leave Lot to the danger of his own fate that he has made for himself? That's the question. And I think part of what Genesis 14 is relaying to us regarding Lot and what he's caught up in is that this is part of the mess that he has made by making a very foolish choice just back in Genesis 13. Remember Genesis 13? There's strife, there's conflict. Abraham wants to resolve it, and he does so very humbly by saying, let's let there be no strife between us. Why don't you go your way and I'll go my way, and I'll let you pick wherever you want to go. And, and I argued, it's speculative, but I argued that Lot should have said, I'm not leaving you, Abraham. I'm staying right near you. You are the man that God has promised to bless, and I'm going to stay near you. Whatever we need to do to resolve this, I will do it. If it means getting rid of my possessions and kind of downsizing, I'm going to do it. Well, instead of sticking with that, instead of prioritizing his spiritual well-being, he looks over at the region near Sodom, and he says, you know what? I think there might be an alternative blessing over there. I'm going to see what that's like. I'm going to go over there. And it says he dwelt near Sodom. Well, where did this pillaging army find him? They didn't find him just near Sodom. They now found him in Sodom. He's, he's getting closer and closer to this place that has a reputation of great wickedness and sinfulness in the sight of the Lord. He's drifting in the wrong direction. So in separating from God's chosen man, he does not find the treasure he's looking for. Instead, trouble finds him. Whenever we separate from the place that God has promised his blessing, we can expect danger and trouble. Well, for us as Christians, we need to remember that the world will always hold out to us alternative blessings before our eyes, alternative paradises, as it were, alternative pleasures that say, come away from the thing and the place and the environment that God says he'll bless and see what else is out there for you. And in those moments, we need to remember the words of the apostle Peter in John 6. In John 6 People came to Jesus because he fed them with bread and they thought, man, this guy, this is great. We get free food if we come to this guy. And that Jesus says, no, no, no. You came because you wanted physical bread, but I tell you, I'm the bread of life. And he who eats will never hunger. He who thirsts will never be thirsty again when he comes to me. But there's a cost to following Jesus. And a bunch of them left. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, 
Are you guys going to leave me too? Peter says, to whom else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We're going nowhere. We're sticking right here, even if everyone else leaves. And remember Jesus' words in John 15, 5, when the world offers alternative blessings. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Lot was looking and his real estate agent should have said to him, there's three keys, near Abraham, near Abraham, near Abraham. That's the key to where you should live. Now he didn't have a real estate agent, but that's what the agent should have said. That's the best place to live. And for us, the best spiritual real estate we can get as Christians is abide in Christ, abide in Christ, abide in Christ. That is the best, the safest, and the sweetest place to live in all the world. But Lot didn't make that decision. And now he is in a world of trouble. And the question is thrust on Abraham. Do I at great risk to myself help my nephew who does not deserve my help? But it does not stop Abraham in the least. He does not deliberate. He does not debate. He acts. And look at verses 14 to 16 and see what he does. So verse 14 tells us he he gathers a small army, very specific number, 318 men, which we're to note, I think, that it does not even compare to the size of the army that he's going after. He is incredibly outnumbered, and yet he still goes to seek and save Lot. But then verse 15 shows the military wisdom that God blesses Abraham with because he knows he's outnumbered, When you're outnumbered, you need to outsmart them. So he outsmarts them and he decides to do a stealth mission. He goes under the cover of darkness by splitting his army up into different groups and they come in at night and they drive the forces out and they rescue Lot. But verse 16 recounts that it's not just successful in the first objective to rescue Lot, but it's successful beyond what they expected because they not only reclaim Lot, they reclaimed all the other people of Sodom and their possessions and Lot and all his possessions as well. This is a wildly successful underdog adventure that Abraham has just gone on. But we're asking the question, why does Abraham execute this risky rescue operation for his nephew who does not deserve it? Well, I think the answer lies in what God has already done for Abraham. He, Abraham, was seeking to rescue Lot as God has already rescued him time and time again. Abraham is doing for Lot what he has learned God has done for him and is going to do for him over and over again. I mean, think of the end of Genesis 12. At the end of Genesis 12, Abraham faces a famine right after God has given his his promises and he doubts them right away. And in his doubt, he goes to Egypt. And in his doubt going to Egypt, he deceives and he lies about the identity of his wife And then that gets them into a situation in which his wife is now being brought into Pharaoh's house because he's going to marry her. And Abraham has brought the promises under threat because of his own foolishness and sinfulness. And yet, what does God do for him? God comes and intervenes and rescues Abraham and preserves him and delivers him by his grace. When Abraham was foolishly, sinfully doubting God's promises and got himself into a pickle, God still came and rescued him. Our God loves to rescue undeserving rebels. That's what he does. 
And so Abraham has seen what the character of God is like, that he loves to rescue undeserving rebels like him. And so he does the same for Lot. In the words of Jesus in the New Testament, John 13, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. When we know and meditate and grasp the love of God to us, it cannot help but shape how we go and in turn love one another. So Abraham was doing for Lot what God had done for him and we'll see, will continue to do for him over and over again. And in doing that, Abraham was previewing for us what Jesus came and did for undeserving sinners like us. The greatest rescue operation ever undertaken, never to be beaten and defeated, is the fact that Jesus leaves the glories of heaven to seek and save lost sinners like us. While we were captives to sin, a greater army and a greater bondage that we could never break ourselves of, undeserving of the Lord's love because of our rebellion, he rescued us not merely by risking his life, but by laying it down on the cross, suffering the agonies of the judgment that we deserved. And Jesus is no one rescue wonder because after we come to a saving knowledge of the truth, what does he do for us over and over again? He rescues, he restores, he forgives, he reconciles over and over, day after day, as we stray, as we wander, as we fall short. We have a savior who leaves the 99 to seek after the one over and over again. We have a savior who loves to rescue and restore undeserving sinners like us. And when you see that, how then should you process the question, do they deserve my help? When a family member or a church member or even a stranger is in trouble and in need, how should the love of Christ to you shape how you answer the question, do they deserve my help? Now, I'm not trying to bypass the wisdom question of how might we help someone who doesn't deserve it, but we still need to think about how should the gospel shape my extension of love even to those who don't deserve it? Because in our case, when the Lord was asked, as it were, do they deserve it? Here's how he answered the question. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, finally, we've looked at the risks of the rescue operation and the execution of it. Now let's close by looking briefly at the glory or reward of this rescue operation. So another question we ask when being faced with someone who's in trouble and needs help is, what's in it for me? How will my efforts be rewarded in in this action? Will I get dessert? Will I get name recognition? Will I get payment? Will I get a future IOU? Will I put them in my debt so I can use it later? And historically, in, in the ancient world, they answer this question quite differently than we do. I've been reading through the Iliad by Homer. And what drove a soldier like Achilles to, to go into the Trojan War was not what we would typically think. It was what drove him was the thought that by his actions, whether he lives or dies, his name would be remembered, that people would remember the greatness of Achilles. And so it was, it was the, the thought of glory that drove someone to do something risky and, and dangerous. But us modern folk, we usually like something a little bit more tangible to hold on to than, than name recognition. And I'm going to use myself as a bad example of this. 
Uh, our presbytery, this is kind of the region of our, our churches, our sister churches together. We, we meet uh, quarterly and we have to do a lot of very fun things like take minutes and have agendas and very exciting stuff. Well, they needed a clerk to help run the meetings and take all the minutes from the meetings. And I was asked by a couple people to do it. And I just said, you know, there's no way, like I'm in a season of life with my family, the church, I just, I'm not gonna take on extra responsibility. It's probably the most involved job in our presbytery. Well, then they sent out an email a couple weeks later that said, we're actually gonna compensate for this position of clerk. And my no way suddenly turned into very spiritual. Let me, let me pray about it <laughs> and ask the Lord. Now, I, I still said no. Um, that was still my answer. But just looking at my own heart, I had to be honest that my service was, my, my decision about that service was almost changed because I, I knew there'd be something I would get out of it, right? Well, in this closing scene of this episode of Abraham's rescue of Lot, Abraham is put to the test of what were your motives? What was your ambition in seeking to rescue Lot? And the way that he's put to the test is there's two kings. And these two kings represent two ways that Abraham could seek a reward or, or two ways Abraham could look at the reward of this service that he's just performed for Lot. So verse 18, you have Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now I know this is a very mysterious figure that shows up in Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. That's a whole nother sermon. I'm not gonna get into that. So if you, if you are curious about who this person is, you might just have to ask me later. But anyway, you have Melchizedek, king of Salem. He represents one way to respond and think about reward for your service. Then verse 21, you have the king of Sodom, who represents a different way to think about the reward of your service. Well, Melchizedek points Abram to God. He points him up to heaven and says in verse 20, if you look there with me, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham has just done something amazingly courageous and risky and wildly successful. And Melchizedek is saying, don't get full of yourself. Look to the Lord. The Lord is the one who enabled you to do this. Give him the glory for this. And really all he presents them with is bread and wine. Very, very simple, basic, staple things of nourishment, food and drink to celebrate that God gave this victory. Well, then the king of Sodom appeals to Abraham's more earthly appetites. And he tries to even strike a deal with him. Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So notice even the differences in the first two words. The first word used by Melchizedek is blessed. The first word by the king of Sodom is give, give me. The king of Sodom is subtly trying to form an alliance with Abraham by giving him so much riches and goods that Abraham can't help but be in his debt. And remember, we know the reputation of Sodom. It is a greatly wicked place that, whose reputation and sinfulness is known throughout the land. So the question is, is Abraham going to make a wiser decision than Lot made when Lot decided to go near there and intertwine himself in their worldliness and ungodliness? Well, here's what Abram does in verse 22 to 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, Get, um, sorry, I'm reading the long place. Um, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, verse 22, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. 
So Abraham, in, in essence, refuses the riches of the king of Sodom because he wants nothing to do with any alliance or any partnership with this person who is known for his wickedness. And he's able to do this because he knows that what the king of Salem, Melchizedek, said is true, that God is the one who has granted the victory, that it is only through God that real, lasting, and rewarding blessing truly comes. And he wants to make sure that God gets all the glory for what he accomplished. He doesn't want any credit to be taken away from the Lord. Which always asks us the question, when we are serving one another, and let's say even our service is beneficial and fruitful to them, what is the greatest reward that we can get from that beneficial service? When we help another believer, when we help a family member, financially, spiritually, counsel-wise, with our time, what rewards you in that service? Well, the greatest reward that we see here is knowing that the Lord was pleased to use us as instruments of his grace in the life of another. The greatest reward a believer should have is knowing that I was an instrument in the Redeemer's hand to be an instrument of grace in the life of another person. And more than that, the reward of our service should know that through our good deeds, other might see them and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And the only way that can become our reward and service is when you grasp how undeserving you are in the first place of God's love to us in Christ. How much he has showered his blessing upon you that you did not deserve. How he came to you when you were in your sin and saved you and sought you. That will fuel you to show love to others. That is risky, that is courageous, that is costly and inconvenience because God has shown it to you. And when you grasp how God is the one who blesses you with everything, that God is the one who enables you to do anything in service to others, it will fuel you to love others freely, regardless of the reward, the reciprocation. We don't need any of it because we have all that we need in God. We can be a blessing to others because God has so richly blessed us. And so the example of Abraham and the call in it is to see how Christ has loved us in his rescue operation and then to love others as God and Christ has loved us. A risky life laying down to the undeserving type of love. Let's pray.